0: do you ever wish that the communication in your relationship were a little bit better well there are lots of ways to improve your communication skills however not all of those ways are actually going to help you in your relationship that's because many of the conventional ways that we're taught to improve our communication could actually create more disconnect with our partner when what we're trying to do is build connection and build intimacy, even when we're talking about challenging things. So I put together a free guide for you. It's called my top three relationship communication secrets. And these are three things that are easy to put into practice, but will have an enormous impact on your ability to stay connected with your partner while you talk about anything, the sweet things or the challenging things. To get the guide, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com relate, and that's R-E-L-A-T-E, or you can text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions, and I will send you a link where you can download the free guide. It's three simple things that will have an enormous impact on the communication in your relationship. All right. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. On the show, we've focused primarily on the cause of how to have amazing, thriving relationships. And we've also talked about how to deal with problems that come up in relationship. Among them, things like infidelity. And... I thought it was time to go a little bit deeper into the question of why do we love in the first place? What is it in our biology that that brings about the impulse to love? And on top of that, where do things like long-term partnership and sleeping around fit in to what makes us human? And there's perhaps no better person around to talk about that topic than Dr. Helen Fisher. She is the chief scientific advisor to Match.com, a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and you've probably seen her TED Talk, The Brain on Love. She's also the author of Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. And it is such a pleasure to have her with us today. To talk about these questions that I raised and many others. If you are interested in downloading the detailed show guide for this episode, please visit slash Helen, that's H E L E N. Or as always, you can text the word passion to the number 33444 if you're in the States and follow the instructions, and I will send you a link where you can download the show guide for this episode, as well as all of our other episodes. So, without further ado, Helen Fisher, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Oh, I'm delighted to talk to you, Neil. Well, your book, Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray, it goes back millions upon millions of years, and... We won't be able to cover all of those millions of years here today. Uh, Maybe we'll have you back on the show for that. Um, But there are some particular points that I think are really interesting and maybe a good place to start. And that is because, as you probably heard in that introduction, a focus of the show is helping people have amazing long term partnerships and. It seems like a central thesis of your work is, at least in Anatomy of Love, is that in many respects, there are these competing aspects of our biology. And and if you look at societies as a whole and cultures all around the globe, you'll find that there are patterns that aren't exactly long-term monogamy. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you can start by... Maybe thinking about musing on whether or not, is the, is the quest for long-term monogamy that's happy and thriving and growing, is it futile? Or is, it, oh. is there a point mm-hmm. to it?
1: Well, uh, um, in terms of points, uh, I, I don't deal in that world, but I certainly, um, I'm very positive about the future. Uh, We are built to form pair bonds, just as you said. Um, I do go back 21 million years and, and I trace the evolution of pair bonding, monogamy, mono means one, gammy means spouse, one spouse. It does not mean fidelity to that spouse. Uh, in the academic community. It doesn't. It does to people on the street. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, the re- here's the reason that I'm, I'm... So we we are built to fall in love. I mean, I, I, I and my colleagues have put over 100 people in a brain scanner and it's quite clear that the brain is very well built to feel the sex drive, uh, to feel intense feelings of romantic love and to uh, feel feelings of deep attachment, but as you say, also a tendency to wander. We have both a drive to uh, you know, build a long-term partnership and also a drive to cheat. Now, people deal with this differently, and I can certainly explain the, the, some of the bio- biology of both this drive to fall in love and feel attachment and also to cheat. But why am I so excited about the future? It's something that I call slow love. And um, it comes from my data with match.com. I do an annual study with match called singles in America. We don't, whole the match members. It's a national study of single people based on the U.S. Census, so it's a representative sample of singles in America. And every year, I've noticed that I ask about 200 questions, and uh, and uh, every year I ask, you know, have you ever had a one-night stand? And have you ever had a friends with benefits? And have you ever lived with somebody long term? And every year, over 50% of uh, our 5,000 respondents say yes, they have. Now, not necessarily in the last year but certainly in their lifetime. Over 50% of single Americans have had a one-night stand of friends with benefits and lived with somebody long-term before they married. And Americans regard this as completely reckless. And I had thought so too. But then I thought, you know, That many people can't be doing something so crazy. There's gotta be some Darwinian evolutionary, uh, you know, drive to this. And then I noticed a study that, um, 67% of current people who are living with somebody long term Before they marry, I've not married yet because they are so terrified of divorce. They want to get to know every single thing about a partner before they tie the knot. And so, what I think we're seeing in America and probably around the world is what I call an extension of the pre commitment stage a long period before you tie the knot, before you marry. Then it began to occur to me oh, if there's this, and then commitment light, you know, from pre commitment to (laughs) commitment light, just, you know, just living together, um, not being responsible for each other's families or children or the money or et cetera. So this is long pre-commitment stage, and it began to occur to me, okay, if people are having this long period of time getting to know somebody before they actually marry them, that gives them a lot of time to really get to know the person and get rid of relationships that don't work for them so that by the time they walk down the aisle, they know who they got. They know they want who they've got, and they think they can keep who they've got long-term. So then I thought to myself, well, okay, if more and more people are marrying a lot later, getting to know the person a great deal before they marry, maybe we'll see happier marriages. And so I did a study of 1,100 married people, and I asked them a lot of questions, but one of the questions was, would you remarry the person that you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. So I do think that the later marriage, and by the way, marriage is getting later and later. I mean, I've looked at Eighty cultures around the world so the demographic yearbooks of the United nations and The later that you marry, the more likely you are to stay married and that i 've seen since the 1940s i 've seen that. Trend: The later you marry, the more likely you are to remain married. But here's the second trend. The more you spend time with a person before you marry them and know who you've really got by the time you do marry, the more likely you are to stick together. So, And I do see both trends in the world today, certainly in America. We're marrying later and later and um we're getting to know the person before we tie the knot. I think they're both very good trends. You know, this doesn't suggest that everybody's going to have a long-term happy marriage. You know, in hunting, I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist, and in hunting and gathering societies, women and men tended to have two or three spouses during the course of their lives. So this book is also about serial monogamy, a series of pair bonds, and that's probably what we evolved to do, to have a series of partnerships during the course of our lives. But I think what's happening with the young today is they're having their ser- series of partnerships in their teenage years and in their 20s, and then they're marrying. And there's every reason to think that some of these could be very long and very happy.
0: Yeah, and you I'm glad you brought that up about seeing serial monogamy in, in hunter-gathering societies and then also that's a lot of what's happening in our culture where people get together they they get together primarily out of romantic love and they're together long enough to have a child or and see that child through to the years when they would be weaned and maybe off to daycare if they're lucky enough to be home with their with their Family, you know, before then. And then there's this, it seems like there's this crucial juncture where a couple might at that point decide to split. And it may not be like a conscious decision, but the pattern suggests that after that three to four years, it's time to find another.
1: You you read my book. Um, I, in my book, Anatomy of Love, of course, I go into this in great detail. What I did is, uh, it, uh, is I looked at divorce in 80 cultures around the world. I started in 1947 collecting data. I mean, I, I looked at data through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, and they've got data on 80 societies. And they ask every 10 years or so, you know, have you married? Have you divorced? How many children do you have? And many other things. And my hypothesis was that people would tend to divorce during and around the seventh year of marriage, not only because of the classic concept of the seven-year age, but because seven years, in seven years, it would take one man and one woman uh, uh, seven years to have two children, um, uh, uh, perhaps through infancy, therefore reproducing themselves. And so I thought from a Darwinian perspective, that would make sense. But over and over and over, I found it's not the seven-year itch, it's the four-year itch. Uh, if you're going to divorce, and not everybody divorces, but if you're going to divorce, you tend to divorce during or around the third to fourth year of marriage. And I thought to myself, what, what is this? Uh, but then I, began re- then I began to look at um, pair bonding in birds and mammals, and as it turns out, um, 97% of the mammals do not form pair bonds. Only 3% do, and we are among them. It's quite unusual that we do form pair bonds. Almost 90% of the birds do form pair bonds. A robin in the spring finds another robin, and they build their nest, and they have their babies, and, and they stay together. Well, they have to stay together because somebody's got to sit on those eggs, and that pers- individual will starve to death if they, if that individual isn't fed. So among birds um, who have to sit on eggs and uh, rear their young together, but they don't rear their young past the infancy of the young. When the baby robins fly away, the pair bond breaks up. And it began to occur to me, maybe it's the same in ancient people, that they evolved the drive to stay together at least long enough to raise one child through infancy about four years. That's the natural spacing of of birds in the human animal. So... Um, and if they, of course, a child is, even a million years ago, wasn't on its own by age four, but um, but uh, it could then join a, uh, what they call a multi-age play group and be cared for by a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old and 15-year-olds and aunts and uncles and cousins. It wasn't totally dependent on the mother for nursing and the child uh, and the pair bond. So I think we must have evolved what... Uh, uh, um, a sort of a a predisposition for serial pair bonding, a series of partnerships linked with having one child at at a time. So if one man and a woman a million years ago fell in love, and I I think they were falling in love a million years ago, they weren't maybe doing poetry, they may have been doing songs and dances about it. But anyway, the bottom line is that they fell in love and formed a partnership and had a child and um, didn't get along terribly well uh, and the child gets to age four or whatever and begins to join a playgroup, both of them can break up, find a new partner, and have another child with somebody else, thereby creating more genetic variety in their lineages. And you see this in women and men today. You'll see a woman who will say, well, you know, I had three marriages. It really was a failure. And I'll ask her, I'll say, well, how many... How many, did you have any children? Yeah, she said, I had, you know, I, I had two children with my first husband and one child with my second. Well, from a Darwinian perspective, she has created more genetic variety in her young by having children by more than one partner. So millions of years ago, it was probably adaptive, unless you had a very solid, good partnership. And there certainly is possible to do that. But if it was a rocky partnership in, in many ways it may have been to the advantage of our ancestors to break up after the child could join a playgroup and find a new partner uh, and and bear more uh, uh, genetically different young. So leaving in the human animal, this tremendous drive to fall in love and to form a pair bond and to rear our children as a team, but also a tendency to break up and fall in love again with somebody new and have more children with them.
0: Sometimes I love this idea decide, that, you know? yeah, I love <laughs> this idea that, a, go ahead, go ahead.
1: No, well, we've got a big cerebral cortex, you know, we've evolved a big cerebral cortex with which we uh, make decisions, so we're not puppets on a string of DNA, I mean, even though we may have predispositions for serial care bonding, it doesn't mean that everybody does it.
0: Right, right, and uh, well, I love the idea that you could go up to someone who's feeling like a failure after several marriages and just say, "Well, you know, from a Darwinian perspective, you've succeeded enormously." So you're-
1: <laughs> <laughs> they might not, may they might not see the, the the joy in that. You know, they you know, divorce is very very difficult. As a matter of fact, I once read a book about a divorce lawyer, and he apparently he said he, well, he wasn't just divorce; he was a regular, I don't know, some sort of judge. Anyway, the bottom line is. All kinds of real hardened criminals would come into his chambers, but he said he finally put a panic button in the bottom of his desk so he could push it when people really got angry, and he said the only people that really would lose it were were couples divorcing, and I, I thought, you know, why is this? Why do you get so upset and so hurt and so, even if you're the person that did the leaving, People have terrible troubles uh, with divorce. And I think it's because you're really fighting for your DNA. You know you 're fighting for the future of your your lineage. I mean, who does get those children who gets the house? How much money do people get to support those children to send them to school to get them computers and bicycles, et etc, et etc So if divorce is not just a you know a break in social relations and economic problems and and uh, problems with family but Darwinian evolutionary uh issues of, of passing your lineage on to tomorrow. So we're very well built to be very angry. You know, it's called abandonment rage. And boy, what people will do when they've been dumped is out of this world. There's yeah. no good way to do it. So one thing that's amazing is that You know, I I study a lot of rejection in love. I mean, I've put a lot of people in a brain scanner and studied what happens in the brain. And it is an addiction, by the way, romantic love, a a wonderful addiction when it's going well and a perfectly horrible addiction when it's going poorly. But these people who have been rejected in love show activity in basic brain regions linked with all of the addictions. So, uh, you know, you, you can make some pretty bad mistakes when you're being rejected.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and on top of that throw in the the trauma of experiencing a rupture of attachment which is again one of those core uh kind of traumas that we can experience to our to our psyche and our biology, I think.
1: Oh, sure. Well, you know, um these people who have been rejected in love when I put them in the brain scanner with my colleagues, uh we showed activity they found activity in a basic brain region linked with um Intense uh, feelings of romantic love. uh, When you've been dumped, you don't stop loving the person. Um, Also activity in a brain region linked with feelings of deep attachment to the partner. Three brain regions linked with craving and addiction and focus. And a brain region linked with physical pain and with the um, anxiety that goes along with physical pain. So, as a matter of fact, it's a brain region that becomes... Active when you 've got a, a a really bad toothache that also that same brain region becomes active when you 've been rejected in love, so um, you know i mean loving somebody and making the a strong, powerful happy partnership is the most important thing that we do uh, for ourselves and for those around us because that 's what sends our DNA into tomorrow. People in long, happy relationships, I think they live longer. Uh, They definitely have more sex and sex is good for you. They probably got more good laughs and that's important. Uh, So it's, you know, what what you're trying to do, Neil, is smart uh, to try and understand how people can achieve this.
0: I, I want to, for, for you listening, if you are going through a breakup, I just want to point out that one of our guests back in episode 21 was Catherine Woodward Thomas, who, whose recent book, Conscious Uncoupling, deals with how to handle the pain of, of a breakup. And I believe that she cites your um, your brain scan studies in her book, Helen. Um,
1: does, does she say it's an addiction?
0: Um, I'm, I believe so. Yeah. That, that, that good. there's, uh, That's good. yeah. Cause
1: I'm trying to fight the, I mean, I'm not trying to fight, but I'm trying to get the addiction community understanding that romantic love is an addiction. I mean, people pine for love, they live for love, they kill for love and they die for love. I mean, really, if it's not an addiction, why would you kill yourself, you know, or kill somebody else? So. Um, it's a very powerful addiction. Well, of course, I don't know everything that she said in Conscious Uncoupling, and it's something that, now that you've mentioned, I really should read the book. There's so much to read. It's just a shame that one doesn't have more time. But anyway, the bottom line is, uh, she may be, yeah, I mean, she's written a whole book on it. It's got to be, she's taken, looked at it from many angles. And I've only looked at it from, well, from the angle of what happens in the brain when you've been rejected in love. And, and the fact that, uh, you know, it is an addiction. The addiction letters do become active and um, I would treat it as a standard addiction throw out the cards and letters do, don't write don't call don't try to be friends for two or three years anyway because that just fuels your craving um, you know get some exercise give up sugar uh, get novelty 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 do novel things with new people go back to old friends and get hugs and kisses that drives up the oxytocin system all the novel novelty drives up the uh, the uh, <clears throat> Uh, do, uh, the dopamine system that to give you optimism and focus and energy uh, exercise drives up the dopamine system to give you uh, some energy and some a new lease on life, et cetera. so I would treat it um, as an addiction now. You know, if you've got children that you're going to have to continue to support together for many years, um, and uh, you know, and have a property you share or a business you share, then you've got to do your conscious uncoupling in in other ways. And I'm sure she does very well on that. Uh, but anyway, it's a it's hard to do. Breaking up is hard to do, no matter what. Uh,
0: yeah. The know. thing that makes me really curious too is is was that kind of pain? Is that happening in societies where it's more normal to do the serial monogamy every three or four years like how much of that do you think is kind of like cultural learned pain versus no? that actually everyone if you're divorcing uh and you're in africa if you're divorcing in the amazon if you're divorcing in new york city like you're going through that kind of pain
1: everywhere in the world people um Uh, who are breaking up, go through pain. You know, I don't study the American brain. I study the human brain. And we have gone to China. Excuse me, some colleagues of mine have gone to China and done exactly the same experiment that I did in the United States, putting young lovers into a, a brain scanner. That's only one of our studies. But anyway, it's exactly the same brain, you know. I'm studying romantic love is a brain system like the fear system you can be scared if you're in the Amazon you can be scared if you're in Mongolia you can be scared if you're in the Highlands of New Guinea and you can be scared if you're living in New York City in the same way you can be madly in love with somebody and terribly hurt when you've been rejected and terribly angry uh, whether you're in the Amazon uh, Mongolia or anywhere in the world this is human human you know now different cultures are going to treat it differently they're going to have different opinions about it for example the worldwide attitude about divorce is best summed up by the mongol people of of siberia and they say if two people cannot get along harmoniously together they had better live apart so there's a lot of cultures in the world who handle divorce uh, differently. I mean, we go through excruciating discussions of money and children. There's a lot of cultures where everybody knows who owns the child uh, because the child is part of a certain clan and it's born into that clan and it will remain in that clan whether the whether that marriage goes on or doesn't go on. So, you know, Americans have an awful lot of property. We've got a, a very complex legal system and we've got a... a um, a real... I don't think divorce is actually as shameful as it used to be. I remember when I was growing up, there was only one girl in the first grade when I was growing up who came from, quote unquote, a broken home. And these days, the word has even gone out of style. People don't talk about the broken home. And the vast majority, huge number of people, not the majority, but a huge number of people have experienced divorce, either themselves or their sisters, brothers, parents, and children. Uh, Yeah. So... It's not Yeah, a, it's we talk a,
0: about blended families and bonus mothers and bonus fathers and that whole yeah. paradigm a bonus is shifting.
1: And a bonus mother. I've never heard that. What's a bonus uh, mother?
0: It's a, it's a more positive way of saying someone's stepmom or their stepdad. Oh, it's,
1: how wonderful. Isn't this great? <laughs> you know, I just love all these new terms. I swear, I'm I'm crazy about the millennials. I don't know if you're a millennial, but uh, I'm, I'm crazy not, about it. Everybody but thinks you're not... Um, I'm, You know, everybody thinks they're just laggards and sex monkeys. They are not. These people are ambitious. In fact, these days, women are putting off family in order to stick with the career. In the past, once they uh, could have a family, they dropped the career. You know, they're very ambitious, and i think bringing in all these new words. Um, what is it, a bonus, <laughs> a bonus mother, or what is
0: it? Yeah, a bonus mom or a bonus dad. A
1: bonus mom. Oh, that's just... Wonderful! I think that's a very good point, man, a very good indication of of people's attitudes changing. I read an article about six months ago that really had an impact on me. And, you know, in the past uh, centuries, many centuries, you stayed together for the children, even if it was a perfectly horrible relationship. And these days, over 70% of of Americans believe, I think it was 70%, maybe a little less, 60% in there, uh, believe that... um, if it's a really bad relationship, it's better to divorce for the children. So if the kid comes home from school and, you know, mother's sobbing in the bathroom with a black eye and dad is drunk on the couch, it's better to, um, break up, uh, that, that, that and, and go on to it. I mean, children need a, a peaceful home where there is, uh, mutual support from, from from the people around them and any way that can happen is, is best for the child and for the parents so um, these, are, these things are all changing I want to talk a little bit about happiness in the brain if, if we Please. can go that direction well you know psychologists um, regularly say what makes a happy long term marriage and they're all correct I've got nothing against any of it uh, I mean there's some theories I'm more fond of than others but the bottom line is no question about it that if you have contempt for somebody and if you're constantly arguing it, it's not going to make a happy marriage so um, or if you're threatening divorce, so there's all kinds of psychological tips that can be given to somebody to make a happy marriage. but this is what the brain says, and i'm not trying to i just trying to add to the um conversation. I'm not saying that the psychological perspective is wrong, it's not. I'm trying to add the neuroscience. Uh, perspective. And it comes from the fact that we put people it, it, who were in love long term, uh, 21 years, these people were married an average of 21 years, and they showed pretty much the same activity in the in the brain as new lovers, um, with some exceptions. But uh, But anyway, they were in love, not just loving, but in love long term. Most of them had grown children. And here's what we found in the brain. We found activity in three brain regions. A brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own emotions and your own stress, and a brain region linked with what I call positive illusions, the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do. And that's what the the brain was doing in these long-term happy people. They were showing empathy for the partner, they were controlling themselves, and they were overlooking the negative.
0: Yeah, and that represents actually one of the central theses, theses of this podcast and, and a course on intimacy that my partner Chloe and I put together, which is that one of the core relationship problems is is actually what you just described. It's how do you um, develop your capacity for recognizing ne- negative emotional states and coming back into regulation, um, like Steve Porges talks about in in his polyvagal theory. How do you recognize mm-hmm. when you're in fight, flight, freeze and come back into a state of regulation? And, mm-hmm. and on top of that, how do you foster um, you're cherishing your, your admiration, your gratitude, the, the, the positive side. It's like, um, what John Gottman refers to in the, the five to one ratio that he's, um, discovered through his research as being so crucial, five positives to one negative for long-term partnerships to be successful.
1: So is that in the course of a day? Uh, um, I've got all his books. He's a great, great guy, but I just don't remember this particular thing. Does he say um, you should have five positive things you say to the person during the course of one day as opposed to one negative, or how does it work?
0: I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's kind of like a fractal. So as you look at the big picture of things, um, you're you're shooting for five to one. But I guess if you had like one really horrible year, I'm not sure that five amazing years are going to make up for that. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. It's true. And, you know, maybe and I'm they sure... will.
1: I mean, I guess just thinking, you know, okay, you suddenly discover that your wife is adulterous or something like that. And, and you have a, a horrible year and... Finally, she or he gives up the other person and has come clean and is adoring you. And then for the next five years, you know, you relocate to who knows where in the, some beautiful place and fi- spend five years in bed together laughing and joking and, and getting much closer because now um, that's over and you are able to solve it. You know, I, I wouldn't give up. I don't give up. I I'm I can see an optimist. But there are times to give up. By the way, I mean, <laughs> there's times to get rid of, you know, uh, as um, uh, you know, Confucius said, he said, you know, the way out is through the door. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's sometimes when it is just not going to work, and you don't have that much time on the planet. It's time to move on.
0: Right, and that is such a, a delicate balance in relationship. It's, it's, um, you know, answering that question of. You know, when is enough enough? And I I love your point that, and it is true, that a horrible year followed by five amazing years could actually lead to uh, an overall really satisfied long-term marriage. And in fact, you know, that's something that we see time and time again. Particularly in the course of infidelity, that it can lead to a much stronger relationship if the couple survives the, the um, trauma yeah, and talked of it that out happening.
1: and, and works out the problem that led to it and uh, understand each other better and, you know, um, all of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, and at the same time, I think in John Gottman's work, he's also talking about the micro moments, the the bids for a, um, engagement and communication that happen throughout a day. Um, and So even if your spouse or partner asks you like, hey, you know, what's what's the weather like outside? If you ignore your partner or or answer contemptuously, well, why don't you look out the window yourself? Well, that's a negative interaction versus like just responding in in kind and in interest that creates a positive Mm -hmm. interaction. So so even on that level, those things are adding up. Over the course right. of a day, a week. Oh no, a question lifetime. about it.
1: Uh you yeah. know, it's interesting because I you know, um I'm I've I've got a a, a new person in my life and we'll see how that goes. But um uh, uh
0: congratulations. I, I learned
1: Well, thank you. We'll see I pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um the uh we ran into something and we were able to solve it in a very interesting way. Um, I think that we've evolved. I've written a whole book on this called Why Him, Why Her. I think we've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving, uh linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems in the brain. And I could and and I've I've I, we are naturally drawn to some people. I mean, people will say, "Well, we have chemistry." I wanted to know what that meant, and indeed, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we are naturally drawn to some people rather than others. Well, anyway, the bottom line is um, he and I are very similar in that we're both very high-dopamine type. Uh, uh, We're both uh, novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, uh, hopefully creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible people. That makes
0: you explorers, uh, right?
1: uh, Explorers. Good for you. Thanks. And he's very high-testosterone. And high, I'm very high estrogen, which also goes together very nicely. I mean, they're naturally drawn to each other. High testosterone is the analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical, good at things like engineering or math or computers or or uh, mechanics. And they're drawn naturally to the high estrogen type, which is the imaginative, intuitive, uh, contextual thinker, good verbal skills, good people skills, trusting, etc. So in those ways, he and I are very compatible. We're both the high dopamine, energetic, curious, creative, and he's the high testosterone, analytical, logical. I regard myself as logical, but, uh, but I'm not skeptical. I'm, I'm not tough-minded, etc. And I'm the high estrogen type. So all that works. But. We're different in the serotonin. He follows the rules much more than I follow the rules. Um, I mean, I don't want to be roadkill, but, uh, you know, the high <laughs> serotonin type is, you know, they like the familiar. Uh, they're calmer. Um, they, uh, they are concrete thinkers. They like structure. They like order. They like plans. They like schedules. Uh, they respect authority. Uh, etc. That's not me. It's just plain old, not me. But anyway, we were going to the movies one night and um, I said to him, I said, you know, sweetie, do you have any water? He said, yo, I got some water. I said, oh, well, great. We can drink the water in the movie. Oh, no, he says, we can't uh, do that. Uh, um, you know, the the rule in the movie house is that you have to, can't bring food in and stuff. You know, you've got to buy from the concession stand. And so uh, we bought the water from the concession stand. Well, that's who he is, that's who he is. He wasn't trying to be difficult with me, um, he didn't respect me any less, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's who he is. And when, and then, and I didn't understand it, And he turned around to me and he said, Helen, it's the serotonin gap. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm gonna begin to build a new language Um, so for example, um, there was a man I used to go out with for a long time and we would, we would, um, write to each other after a good date and say what our favorite part of the evening was. And mine was always something squishy, like, you know, oh, I loved it the way you hugged me right before you said goodbye. And his was something like, oh, I love that part in the movie where we both laughed. And it's probably the estrogen factor. I'm much more sort of empathetic and and touchy-feely, et cetera, than he is. So I'm, I'm gonna try to begin to build a, a, a new language for, for lovers and for friends, um, uh so that we can understand each other really on the biological level.
0: Yes, and I want you listening to know that there is a quiz that you can take on Helen's site, theanatomyoflove.com, um, and we'll have links in the show notes where you can you can find out what your style is, although you know in the broad strokes that you just painted, I, you may even already have a sense of where you know where you're most expressed and, and where you're least expressed.
1: And that's important because most of these personality, uh, profiles only stress what you are what you are and not what you are not and it 's really important also to know what you are not now, for example mm. with me i had a, I have a girlfriend who's very high testosterone I mean she attacks as soon as she walks in she says, "Oh Helen it's a, how did, why'd you buy that dress for that was horrible on you and uh, you know for years i 've just sort of smiled sweetly and taken it she 's very high testosterone. I know she loves me. We have wonderful conversations, so I put up with it. Um, but um, Saturday night, she insulted me so badly that I turned around and got mad. And it's not me. I don't lose my temper like that. And so for the next two hours, I kept apologizing to her. I said, I'm not quite sure. Actually, I do know why I got so mad, but I said, I don't know why I lost it. I know why I was mad, but I don't know why I expressed the mad being anger. anger. But um, I'd had it with her. And I got angry. But anyway, for the next two hours, I kept apologizing to her over and over and said, oh, gee, I don't know why I got so mad. I'm really sorry. And she finally said, Helen, just get over it. I'm over it. Please, you get over it. And the high testosterone type can take that anger. They appreciate you for being who you really are so that they know who you are. And then they, they don't take a slight and live with it forever. Uh, whereas the high estrogen type does. So now I was acting a bit out of character by getting angry at her. And so I was uncomfortable with who I was after that. She was her environment pulled out a part of me that is not. I'm not comfortable with, that it's not natural to me. And so the bottom line is I do think that the more you get to know these things about personality in my book, Why Him, Why Her, or certainly on the the website, theanatomyoflove.com, and get to know more of who you really are and who other people really are, then you can give them what they need. Uh, I now understand the serotonin gap with my new friend and, and can just buy water at the concession stand, no discussion, et cetera. Uh, and, and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, the old the, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. It's not right. Do unto others as they would have done unto themselves, and then they'll hear you and you can win.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: if their world is such that you don't want to play in that ball field, then you've got to go.
0: <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> or, you know, maybe it becomes a, a cause for celebration instead of consternation. Like I could imagine you sneaking a bottle of water into the movie theater and pulling it out and having a laugh with your, with your guy.
1: <laughs> I don't think I'll try it, but, uh, <laughs> but it's an idea. It's an idea. Yeah. But I, got, right. you know, you'll
0: Sorry uh, I was just going to say you'll get a sense of his capacity for for positive illusions when that happens
1: that's a very cute thing that's very cute you know i am chief advisor to match chief scientific advisor to match dot com and I work with a wonderful woman there and um and uh, she has a wonderful husband and you know so they know all about my work of course and when he's irritated with something he goes up into the bedroom he opens apparently I haven't seen this his closet door which is a long full length mirror flaps his elbows up and down screaming positive illusions positive illusions (laughs) 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 but you know I mean we have all kinds of tricks for creating a uh, good marriage and it's worth using them
0: yeah and I'm curious do you think that in a sense, we're developing new capacities. So this ability to recognize that you're triggered and control your negative emotional states and to foster positive illusions, do you think that represents a, like an evolutionary step, possibly, since that's not part of the, the natural cycle of things?
1: Neil, it's a very interesting question. I think we're always overlooking the negative... Um uh, in many of our relationships, I mean, we're walking along with rose-colored glasses. We don't figure we're going to die tomorrow. We we figure, our, hopefully, our, we're going to pray for our kids getting through school, uh, and we can we spend a lot of time. I think you know deception. You know the brain is very well built to deceive yourself. Um, I mean, you can overlook all kinds of things very naturally in a person, and so I don't think this is a new. Phenomenon. I think it may be tagged with a new name. Positive illusions is perhaps um, a good uh, new term for it. Uh, some uh, a little like bonus parents, you know. <laughs> it, <laughs> it it, it it's, it's naming something that is always been there, but now it's got a name. So I would guess that if we went into the Amazon and we talked to some woman about her husband, she'd probably say, Oh. I just can't stand, he's just so sloppy, but boy, he's a good hunter. You know, he brings in the best food of everybody in the village. I think you'd hear the same sort of stuff. Yeah. These are people, you know, everywhere in the world there are people. Everywhere, it's the same old basic brain. Cultures are very different, but the biology is very similar.
0: Right. Well, and we've created an interesting uh, an interesting mix, at particularly at this time in history, Um, I was really struck in Anatomy of Love when you were talking about how um, as soon as we started farming, that that really tied uh, a couple's economic welfare to a particular place, to their land, and that from there, that was really where this, like, emphasis on long-term monogamy um, was seemingly born. Um, And so, but when you couple that with... The fabric of our society now, which doesn't necessarily have structures that um, that foster it in a positive way as opposed to like you know well, why are you staying together? Well, because we should or um why is breaking up bad for the kids? Well, because we don't have a a culture that necessarily lets my four-year-old go and join a playgroup and be raised by the grandparents of the village while we go off to to you know do our work that's you know, we we don't Absolutely. have that right now.
1: Absolutely, so, and you've hit on the. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, Let yeah, I was just only, saying. I'm going to
1: forget. Oh, no, go please go. Um, <clears throat> I think you've hit on one of the most important points of our modern life, and that is, I'm not I'm not terribly upset about divorce. I think if I'm I'm like the Mongols of Siberia, if people if two people cannot get along harmoniously together, they ought, they ought to live apart. And most Americans now agree with me and that concept. The problem is, we're losing local community. You know, in a hunting and gathering society, um, there's no question about it, there were a good 25 other people aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, sisters, brothers, etc., who could help raise a child. And these days, when you divorce, your, mo- your own mother, if you're getting a divorce from somebody, you've got two small children. Your mother li- might live in Minnesota. Your father might live in Costa Rica. Uh, your older brother might live in Panama, you know, or, or France or wherever. So, you know, the, the loss of local community is really an issue. And what we're doing now, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, is rebuilding it in a strange way. I call it the association. Instead of having your parents around and your friends around, I mean, your, you know, your relatives around, we're building friendship circles, really, uh, associations, groups of, of people who, who help each other out. Um, but it's not quite the same as the, as the local community based on, um, you know, uh, consanguineal, I mean, uh, based on blood. But it's based instead on, uh, um, you know, just uh, friendship networks. Uh, so we are trying to rebuild local community, but that, I think, is a serious problem in, a, in our modern world. When a couple breaks up, you know, you've got, I mean, people are so uh, upset with a, a single mom or a single father. They realize how difficult that is. I'm often upset that it's just a man and a woman. Uh, there should be grandparents. We were built to have an awful lot of people around helping you raise that child. And that seems to be vanishing in our modern world. I do think that we are continuing to try to build new ways of doing that, of building a local community. But uh, so many of our communities now are on the Internet. I mean, I've got lots of friends who I only see once every two or three years because they live in different parts of America or the world. I'm in constant contact with them, but I don't see them regularly. And they certainly wouldn't help me get to a hospital if I was sick because they wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So it's so we I think you're right that we are recreating those social structures. And I'm thinking of recently a friend who got surgery and then we created a meal train where a bunch of people signed up to bring meals to the house. And, um, you know, those technology allows us to do those things more easily which seems like a way that technology is is potentially helping. And and I know you talk about um, you know, how you're you're generally pro technology, I think, and though there are plenty of people yeah. who are talking about how it's breaking down in many respects the intimacy and our and our ability to have focused connection versus being really distracted so that's that's a whole nother conversation I don't think these
1: people i don't think these people understand the brain we're built for a focused connection with people you know i think that some people uh, these days Right, 15,000 emails during the course of the year, they're constantly on their cell phone. I mean, you can't walk down the street in New York City, you can't get on a bus, you can't get on the subway, you can't get on a train without hearing everybody around you chattering with their friends and relatives. So um, I do not think that the technology is creating a... Um, we're, we've got more friends who are long-distance, no question about that. In the old days, they had to write letters, so time has changed. You know, you write a letter now, you get a response in 20 minutes, as opposed to, you know, six weeks on a, on a, on a boat uh, where your letter is going. But, um, you know, the technology can't change love. This was my last TED Talk. I've done five TED Talks. I'm a TED All-Star. Uh, and the last one was, Is Technology Changing Love?, Technology can't change love. This is a brain system. It's way below the cortex where we do our thinking. It's way below the limbic system where we uh, orchestrate many of our emotions. Uh, 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 It's in brain regions linked with drive, with craving, with obsession, with focus, with motivation. No amount of technology is going to take the fear system out of the brain. No amount of technology is going to take the anger system out of the brain. And no amount of technology is going to take our human drive to fall in love and form an attachment out of the brain. Now, technology is definitely changing how we court. No question about it. Today, uh, more people meet on the Internet than through a friend. Uh, and much more made on an internet than in a bar. Only six percent. I do this annual study, as I mentioned, with Match, and um, we well, ask where you met your last uh, person you went out with, and uh, or and the last person you you know created a real relationship with. And forty percent uh, this past year, 2016, forty percent of singles who were who were got themselves into a relationship, met that person on the internet. Only twenty five percent met somebody on um, through a friend, and only six percent met somebody in a bar. So, or in, even in church. Uh, so, um, you know, technology is en- enabling an awful lot of people, particularly older people. I mean, you know, when you're older, you're not going to stand around in a bar, you're not going to French class, you're not in college anymore, right. you know everybody through at work, you know everybody through your social circle, it's not going to happen, and so what do you do? You, you get onto the internet and you meet people, I mean, one of the fastest growing um, uh, dating sites right now is Our Time, Our Time, which is for people over 50, they're not going and being grandparents anymore and and living in the home with their children, uh, you know they are uh, living alone or uh, and and dating new people at in their 50s 60s 70s and 80s. so um, I totally agree with 80. you,
0: and at the same time i 'm thinking about like so people leverage technology to make those amazing connections and to stay connected, and those things are all fantastic. And then you have the couple where, you know, they sit down for dinner. But because they are um, they haven't realized, for instance, that they're also addicted to the dopamine hits, the dopamine cycle of getting a new text message or someone, you know, tagging them on Facebook. So their phones are going and completely distracting them from the connection with the partner that's sitting right there across the table. From
1: Absolutely. Them. It's appalling to me. You go into a restaurant. I can see it maybe at home if you've got some problem with this or that. But they went out to dinner together and they're not even talking to each other. It, it, it does, uh, it certainly concerns me, and it makes me feel sad, actually, when I see that, and we see it all the time. But i got to put my anthropology hat on here. And Please. I did travel very briefly with the, the Hadza uh, people who are hunter-gatherers of, um, of, um, of Tanzania, and they're still hunter-gatherers. They hunt with a bow and arrow, uh, etc. And um, the women and men are not, Spending twenty four seven with each other, women spend an awful lot of time sort of sitting around, just out of earshot of the men. Um, you know, playing with the children and talking with each other, and you know, uh, you know, f- preparing the vegetables and building the hut, etc., etc. And men are sitting out of earshot, uh, you know, with each other. Um, uh, you know, making arrows, making bows, uh, skinning animals or whatever, and. You know, this concept that the couple uh, needs to be always together and always connected and always talking is, I think, something that you and I and the rest of our culture cherish. I certainly cherish. But I don't know if it's necessarily uh, always the most natural way and that, um, uh, although it upsets us and it certainly does upset me, um, it might be, uh, they might be both of them, you know, doing important things uh, with friends that uh, uh, that uh, are sealing them together so that next Saturday night they both go off to bowling or wherever, or, you know, the bridge or the opera. <laughs> um, I, so I don't want to pass judgment on people. Uh, I, it makes me feel sad, but I'm a member of our culture, and I like that concept of a very strong intimate pair bond, particularly during a meal.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a it's again a balance that um we need time for deep relating if we are in fact trying to grow and have a long-term successful partnership because it's that deep relating that gets you to really know your partner deeply, to understand them the way they want to be understood as you were talking about earlier and to be able to give them what they need and at the same time right. yeah if you're just totally in that bubble of your of your universe and not um exposing yourself to the ideas of the world or to the the rewards of friendship then then it could be claustrophobic too so
1: yeah i, it's a I, I you element. know in a good relationship everybody feels that they've got a good deal you know yeah. that it's balanced <clears throat> and uh in a bad relationship they both feel that you know uh, one feels that they don't have the right deal. I want to say one other thing about happiness, which we've been talking about. Here's what biology can say about maintaining a long term happy marriage not only empathy for the partner, controlling your own emotions and your own stress, and positive over- illusions, overlooking the negative, but you want to keep all three of the basic brain systems for mating alive. Uh, you want to uh, continue being romantically in love with the person long term it's possible to do that but you've got to do novel things together novelty 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 drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can give you feelings of intense romantic love so uh, that's uh, uh, important uh, uh, to sustain feelings of romantic love by doing novel things stay in touch hold hands Um, sit together on the couch when you watch television as opposed to in two separate chairs. Walk arm in arm. Learn to sleep in the person's arms, at least in the beginning of the evening. Everything, anytime you're in pleasant touch with somebody, you're driving up the oxytocin system and you can feel feelings of deep attachment. So novelty for romantic love. Uh, stay in touch uh, for, people, for feelings of attachment. And it, sex is good for you. Now, not everybody agrees, and as long as both partners agree about the amount of sex, that's what's important. But the bottom line is sex is not only good for the body and the mind, but it's very good for the relationship. Any kind of uh, pleasant stimulation of the genitals drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can sustain feelings of romantic love. And with orgasm, there's a flood of oxytocin and vasopressin linked with feelings of attachment. So, and also, you can drive up the testosterone system so that you want more sex. So you should try to keep all three of those brain systems alive. To keep the sex drive alive, have sex. To keep romance alive, do novel things together. And to keep feelings of deep attachment for your partner, stay in touch. That's what well, the brain that- says.
0: That is the magic combo right there, straight from Dr. Helen Fisher. So Helen, thank you so much for being here with us on Relationship Alive. Your work is groundbreaking, enlightening, and, and I think really helpful as well. So um, I appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. And if people want to find out more about your work, where's the best place for them to find you?
1: Oh my goodness! Uh, um, well, I must seem to be all over the internet. Um, I don't ever look, but I'm certainly told that a lot of my speeches. Well, you could go to my website, helenfisher.com, and a lot of my uh, most recent speeches are just on that home page. And then there's a lot of articles and videos and that kind of thing. Or um, www.anatomyoflove.com. That's our other website that I do with my brain scanning partner Lucy Brown. Or I don't know, just go to Amazon and and buy my book. And my most recent I've written six books, and, and the most recent one is really says an awful lot of uh, of what I've thought about for the last 40 years. Anatomy of Love, second edition.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. And again, we will have detailed show show notes for today's show. You can get them by visiting neilsatin.com slash Helen, H-E-L-E-N, or by texting the word passion to the number 33444 and following the instructions. Helen Fisher, such a pleasure to talk with you. I hope we can have you on the show at some point again in the future. Thank you so much. And
1: same to you, Neil. It was wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks for reading my book and being so knowledgeable about things. That was very
0: nice. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive Community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com podcast, or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, Do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.